This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Negotiations resumed today in the ongoing rift between Denver Public Schools and its teachers. That's as a strike continues, of course. This was the scene this morning at George Washington High School. Hey, hey! Hello! Hello. These unfair wages have to go! Hey, hey! Teacher strikes are rare in Colorado, but when Denver teachers walked off the job, they joined a national wave. School districts across the country are facing strikes. Many of them, including Denver, have something in common. They are in states with the highest gaps between what teachers are paid and what people in other professions earn. That's according to a study by labor economist Sylvia Allegretto at the University of California, Berkeley. And Sylvia, welcome to the program. It's nice to be here. Give us an idea of what has led to this gap between teacher pay and the pay in other professions. Well, the gap has been growing for quite some time, especially since about the mid-1990s. But um, there's a, a lot of issues going on because the gap is measuring a relative difference between public school teachers and other college grads. Huh. The interesting part of it is that the wages of other college grads aren't soaring over time. So it's not that um, more recently they're doing so much better than teachers. It's that the pay of recent college grads have been kind of stagnant, especially after you take into account inflation. But teacher pay is absolutely been falling on average in the U.S. Falling relative to the cost of living and to inflation, I gather. That's correct. So when you when we measure these teacher pay gaps, um, then you see that, that how teachers are doing relative to what they could be doing in other occupations, hmm. um, those pay gaps are getting worse for teachers. So in the U.S., teachers are making about 19% less than other comparable workers. 19%, that's sort of a national figure. Your data right. also covers the state-level picture, uh, not specific to cities, though, like Denver. But where does Colorado rank, though, in, in this kind of teacher pay penalty, as you put it? Well, interestingly enough, our estimates come down really closely to the states that have had walkouts. So Colorado is near the bottom. Arizona, who walked out in the spring, is at the bottom. North Carolina, Oklahoma, Virginia. These are states with teacher pay gaps uh, that we estimate are above 25-30%. 25, I think 35 is the number you put on Colorado, and I'll contrast that again with the national number of 19. That's significant, isn't it? It sure is. There's just a big difference and a lot of variation across states with how teachers are faring. How far back does the gap go? Like, what are its historical roots? Well, my partner, Larry Michelle, and I, who've been doing this work for over 15 years, when we put out our first book in 2004, we went all the way back to the 1960 decennial census. And we looked at how were teachers faring all the way back to 1960. Okay. There's an interesting story here, because in 1960, as today, most teachers are overwhelmingly women. Teachers in that year did fairly well. They had a, a not a teaching penalty, but they had a premium of about 15 percentage points. If you were a teacher uh, and you were a woman who was educated, you did pretty good. Um, the bad news is that we didn't let women do very much back in 1960. They were not allowed into a lot of occupations. And so 
women by and large became teachers or nurses. So that's the bad news, that we had a captive labor pool back then. So we will have a 15% premium back in 1960. Today, it's for women, it's a 15% penalty. That's a 30-point swing. Now, there will be those who, who point out that teachers don't work year-round. Of course, any number of teachers will tell you that they do plenty of planning and things like that in the summer, but there's often the pushback. You know, these are jobs that allow you to have summers off or to take another job. So, of course, there would be a pay gap in comparison to other professions. Do you account for that in your methods? Yeah, I have a couple of things to say about that. One, it's the reason why we look at weekly wage. So if you are working your weekly wage, there's no reason to think when we're looking at that wage that it should be any different if you're a teacher or some other profession. Hmm. If you were looking at annual wages, that might be an issue, right, because they're working less weeks. Secondly, um, teachers more and more are getting second jobs. They're getting second jobs throughout the teaching year, and a large share of them, over 20%, are getting other jobs in the summer. And the reason is that when women were mostly teachers and they thought of teaching being, you know, oh, that's just kind of an addition to family income, that's no longer true. Women, all working women, are providing a large share of family income today. So where summers off used to be a big benefit, for a lot of families, it's actually not anymore. Teachers, women need to work full-time, full year, and that's why we're seeing so many teachers getting second jobs. But I guess what I hear you saying is that the roots of teacher pay today really go back generations. And I suppose we are living today the results of how women were perceived and perhaps what kind of voice they had in, I don't know, like state budgeting decisions even. Sure. Just used to think that, oh, women were doing society a great favor by becoming a teacher. We, we cannot afford to have that type of attitude anymore. And by the way, there's a good reason that men probably aren't coming into the profession in droves. Um, the teacher pay gap for men, when you're looking at male public school teachers against other working males, it's about 27%. So at some point, you know, along when your career guidance counselor is helping you determine what you should be in life, this type of information bubbles up to the top. It's not good news when basically half of uh, college grads, men, don't even really think about becoming a teacher because the price is just too high to pay. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with labor economist Sylvia Allegretto from the University of California, Berkeley, who has looked deeply into how teachers' wages compare to those in other professions. And uh, Sylvia, I wonder if we might wrap up with another dimension of what's happening here in Denver, and that is a huge debate over base pay versus incentives or bonuses for teaching in certain kinds of schools with certain kinds of challenges. Uh, there's something unique to Denver, which is called ProComp. This was a tax that voters passed to send more money to these particularly difficult schools and the teachers who teach there. But I wonder if this larger debate about like base pay versus bonuses, is that manifesting elsewhere? Well, I'm not really sure because each and every school district kind of does their own thing. But the base pay really matters. I mean, when you are trying to kind of pay somebody piecework, a, a professional such as a teacher, that means you have fluctuating pay. 
You can't really count on certain pay year after year because the rules change. You know, if the poverty level of the students increases or decreases, they come under a a hard-to-teach-at-school or not. So maybe you'll get that bonus, maybe you won't. And it changes over time. Uh, So, you know, while you might have some of this kind of bonus or incentive pay, the vast majority of pay should come from the base pay and should absolutely be counted on for each and every teacher year after year. We have heard certainly the same from teachers and an acknowledgement of that fundamental fact by the superintendent of Denver Public Schools herself in a conversation just the other day. Thanks for being with us, Sylvia. Appreciate your time. Yes, thank you. Sylvia Allegretto is a labor economist at the University of California, Berkeley. On day two of the strike, nearly 60 percent of classroom teachers are off the job, and student attendance hovers around 76 percent. Of course, some kids have joined in the protests. Let's get a sense of what students are experiencing. Joe McComb is a senior at Thomas Jefferson High School and a student journalist there. Hi, Joe. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. You're at school now. I wonder how this morning compares to what you experienced yesterday. Yeah, so um, this morning, well, I guess yesterday to start off, um, everyone went into the auditorium at the beginning of the day because we weren't sure where we were supposed to go. Um, we were in the auditorium. Oh, upperclassmen were there for up to 45 minutes. The principal was trying to talk and give instructions to students of where to go and what they should do, but he was just being talked over constantly. You could tell that students were pretty riled up about this. And once he was, uh, dismissed us, uh, there were schedules on the wall that told us what classroom to go to and what substitute teachers we had. So I went up to my classroom, and there wasn't very many kids up there. There ended up being about uh, 20 kids in my classroom that showed up out of about the 35 that were supposed to be in there. Hmm. Do you think that the others had walked out? What do you know about their absence? Right. So uh, yesterday, when the auditorium was mostly full, they even had to open open up the balcony, which usually doesn't happen. That's only happens usually during all school assemblies. So there was a lot of kids there, but I feel like many kids walked uh, out the doors before attendance was even taken. When I was walking into school yesterday morning, I saw big groups of kids walking out already. Um, when I walked in, we were looking at our schedules and there were so many kids trying to find where they were supposed to go. It was so chaotic that some of my friends just walked out before the day started. They, they just said, you know, we're not going to deal with this. So it's, certainly been crazy. This morning, I walked in and it uh, the attendance dwindled so bad um, throughout the day yesterday that instead of having multiple, cl- uh, instead of having, I think it was four or five classrooms each for junior classes and senior classes, um, junior and senior classes today are just consolidated into two different classrooms. So four classrooms total between the upperclassmen. Okay, so relatively, there are few students at Thomas Jefferson today. Uh, How much instruction did you get? What was it like to be in class once you got there? So once we got in class, uh, the principal, well, the principal told us yesterday in the auditorium that our normal seven-day schedule, or normal seven-period schedule, would be divided into a five-day period for juniors and seniors and a six-day period for freshmen and sophomores. So we 
uh, had our core classes, so English, math, social studies, and science. And then seniors had what was called a college class. Um, so it was just kind of, we could do college stuff in there. But um, we really, so each class period, the subs gave us worksheets that the district had provided them. Most students uh, didn't even try to do it at all. A lot of us looked at it and kind of just laughed and uh, decided to focus on other things. Yesterday, kids instead um, played board games, video games, Uno, just anything that could entertain them because the subplans didn't pertain to what we were doing in our classes at this moment. It didn't feel relevant. So, Joe, did you make any progress on college yesterday? Um, no, I did not. Okay. I focused most of my day on reporting. On reporting. Uh, here's how Superintendent Susana Cordova uh, described things after visiting a number of classrooms yesterday. She had a press conference. Everything that I saw this morning, there, there definitely was a range of things that were happening. It was not a normal day, um, but I didn't see any classrooms where it felt like um, students weren't safe, um, that there wasn't supervision, that there wasn't a work going on. Okay, a little tough to hear towards the end there, but she didn't see a classroom where there wasn't supervision, where students weren't safe, and where some work wasn't at least going on. I think your uh, version of things differs just a bit from hers. Uh, who are the adults? So it, was it mostly subs, or did you find that it was like front office staff or headquarters staff minding you? Right, so it was mostly substitute teachers, so... Uh, as the Denver teachers announced that they would strike a few weeks ago, the district basically threatened uh, people working in the central office and said, if you, uh, go, if you decide to go pick it with the teachers, if you decide not to sub, you'll basically get fired. So we had lots of district people in there that I'm sure that if they weren't required to be there, they probably wouldn't. Okay. And a lot of subs, though, you're saying. Joe, thanks for the view. There was a fair amount. Okay. Still still very understaffed, but there was enough for things to function, I would say. Got it. And I can't verify live right now whether people were threatened with being fired, but that student uh, reporter and senior Joe McComb, who writes for the online TJ Journal at Thomas Jefferson High School in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The people who prepare our food have tough jobs, grueling hours, odd shifts, and the pay's not great. No wonder food industry workers have some of the highest rates of illicit drug use. That's where In the Weeds comes in, a new support group in Durango, which, by the way, has one of the highest concentrations of restaurants per capita in the country. Line cook Blaine Bailey co-founded this group. He was motivated by a colleague's death. We had lost one of our prep chefs, Donnie Grotz, to uh, overdose and possible suicide. And he was just a great human being, you know, one of those people that were very happy all the time positive person, lots of friends. And uh, whenever that happened, it was just obviously such a big surprise to us. Do you think there is something specific about the food service culture that had something to do with his death? I think this industry attracts people with maybe mental health or 
or substance abuse, you know, because it's so allowed in the industry, you can come to work hungover or still drunk from the night before. If you're just there, a lot of restaurants, they just need a warm body, honestly, to keep going for the day. And so whatever state you're in, they'll take, you know, there's a lot of ex-cons, felons in the industry as well, because it's one of the few industries that will still take those types of people, which is great. But the potential for someone to still have those addictive personalities still flows in. You noticed that there was a a shortage of therapy and therapists who could sort of speak the lingo of restaurant workers. I wonder if you've tried regular therapy. Yeah, so I was I was getting stressed out just needing to deal with everyday stresses of the restaurant, working those 14-hour days and uh, positive outlets just to get out rather than go into a bottle of whiskey and whatnot. I tried therapy in town and you know, I was going through my normal day-to-day routine with this therapist and she just responded with, oh, wow, that's not what you want to hear from a therapist, <laughs> I would say. I was like, well, okay, like, I don't know if this works for me. And then it was, you know, they couldn't get me in for like six to eight weeks. And it's like, I'm just going to stick to the bottle because that's all I know and it's getting me through. How you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. You know, it, it did take a tax on me for a little bit. Burnout is just so common in the industry. You know, I had a girlfriend for several years leave last year uh, just because I was working so much and not around. And then started hitting the bottle more and finally hit a point where it's like, I need to take a break, like take care of yourself. And so I took a break up in Wisconsin, just kind of working some farm to table Normal eight-hour days. Uh, Normal eight-hour days. This group, I think it's important to say, is not therapy, but you're there to support each other, to offer each other alternatives. Yeah. Like what? What, What's a good way to, as you say, not turn to the whiskey bottle when your schedule may be totally out of whack with the rest of the world, you know? Yeah, and that's something still I'm interested in finding out. You know, for me personally, it was, first of all, forcing myself just to go straight home, rather, to the bar and finding these little crafty projects that are cheap because we don't have that much money. You know, I worked with leather, kind of just some basic leather stitching. You don't need a lot of tools for that. Just something to keep my hands busy there for a little while. Uh, Exercise, just basic exercises at home. And that's part of the reason this group, I I still want to figure out other late night options, you know, bringing a community together of people maybe in the same boat and play some music or, you know, do group activities with each other. You know, I think that the culinary lifestyle is so idealized these days on television. And I think of a book called Cooking Dirty. Uh, it's by food writer Jason Sheehan, who used to live in Denver. He worked as well in a lot of restaurants. He calls it a story of life, sex, love, and death in the kitchen. And it was, for me, the most vivid description of what it is to work in a restaurant. I just want to play an excerpt for you. This comes right after Sheehan was on fire, literally on fire in the kitchen. He puts the fire out and presses on fulfilling orders. We scramble to catch up, each of us in the slot, working with mechanical precision. Crack, shake, flip, turn, crack, turn, flip. Everything's right where I reach, my hands falling unerringly on target. 
orders are all coming up at the same time. It's magic time. Checks are being sold seemingly the minute they come out of the printer, as fast as I can yank them off the slide. For a blessed few minutes, we hit that groove where nothing outside our little box of steel and fire exists. Where the entire universe is reduced down to the moves that we all know by heart. Flip, turn, reach, crack, reach, turn, flip. A refire on a stake buries James temporarily, screws up his rhythm on the grill, but he recovers fast, dancing out of the weeds. There's that phrase, out of the weeds, which is what you've yep. called your food worker support group in Durango, Blaine Bailey. I'm, I'm guessing that's a saying in the biz? Yeah, so in the weeds, that's typically during your dinner rush, lunch, whatever rush, brunch hour, whenever the restaurant's full, you're trying to turn tables, get people in and out as quickly as possible, and get the food out correctly. And typically, anything to go wrong will go wrong during that time. <laughs> That's why we're calling it in the weeds, too, is like whenever you're in that rush, you don't even have time to think about what you need. You're just throwing burgers down, throwing eggs down, whatever it may be. And you won't ask for help because you can't even focus on that. And a lot of the times people in the industry are kind of have that muchacho personality where I don't need the help. And so that's, you know, if you're in the weeds, let's try and get you out of the weeds. So this is yet another profession where asking for help is seen as weak. Yep. Yeah. How do you think you'll open things? At the beginning of each group, I was thinking something fun. You know, in the past week, asking everybody, what was the craziest thing you heard from a guest or an employee or the most ridiculous steak order you've had? You know, the well-done steak one minute before your close, you know, and talking about that. to start off and just to get a relaxation but also kind of a laugh at the beginning and loosen people up so blaine thanks so much for talking to us yeah no thank you guys blaine bailey of durango co-founded in the weeds a new group for restaurant workers to talk about mental health addiction and the challenges they face on the job Ted Bundy was smart, articulate, charming, attractive. He was also a serial killer responsible for the brutal murders of more than 30 women in the 1970s, including several in Colorado. Bundy is the subject of a new documentary on Netflix, Conversations with a Killer, The Ted Bundy Tapes. Among those interviewed is retired Nine News anchor Ward Lucas. In 1974, he was a radio reporter in Seattle covering the disappearance of several young women. King County police launched their investigation after Denise Nasland and Janice Ott disappeared from Lake Sammamish State Park. A special 11-man task force was flooded with calls from witnesses who said they had seen the suspect, a man who called himself Ted. What began as a local story would become a national obsession. And because of what happened with Bundy later in Colorado, he was able to keep killing. Ward Lucas, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Set this scene for us. You're a young news reporter working for a top 40 radio station, KJR. Seattle, Channel 95. (laughs) You still know the jingle. Young women at that point are disappearing. And I wonder what the atmosphere was like in Seattle. It got increasingly tense. It probably part of that is probably my fault because I numbered the the girls on this uh, 
powerhouse radio station, girl number four, girl num- number five. And uh, then the newspaper started copying that. I went on a ride-along, a midnight ride-along with a couple of police officers. We got a call from uh, Capitol Hill. A woman in distress, man trying to break into her house. And uh, we got there. He left. He was just knocking on the door, probably a drunk, just left. But um, she said, I thought I was going to be number 16. My goodness. So but the, the, numbers everybody, were, the numbers were so high you could create a tally. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, they're... I, I still swear that Bundy killed over 100 girls. That there were many more than there were the, many more he admitted girls, to, yep. and that investigators... And he told us, he told one of his, his attorneys that in Florida. As we heard in that archive tape in July 74, two young women, so Denise Nasland and Janice Ott, were abducted in broad daylight from a state park near Seattle. What do you remember about, about that, that day in particular? I had just bought a house down the road and um, got the call from the boss or from a police officer get your butt up to Taylor Mountain and I said why what's up he said just go so I had my infant son in the back seat my wife in the front seat and we're heading to a homicide scene we assumed that um, the bodies because it was so close it was just two miles uh, from Lake Sammamish so I assumed those were the two girls turned out they were not the two girls ended up on the other side of Taylor Mountain. So uh, it was a very odd time. It was an odd story to cover. It's not one we like to go out on. Yeah, and I think the the broad daylight nature of some of the uh, abductions is particularly terrifying. I think most of the abductions were uh, at night. There, there was... A, a daytime where he took a 12-year-old girl from a Florida elementary school. Indeed. Let's fast forward to 1976, Mm -hmm. because by that point, you had moved to Denver to work as a reporter for Nine News. Ted Bundy had been arrested in Utah and convicted of kidnapping a young woman there named Carol DeRanch. Law enforcement officials were increasingly convinced that Bundy was responsible for a string of murders, including one in Colorado, a woman named Karen Eileen Campbell. Tell us about her. I don't don't know much about her. I didn't cover the story. When, once we, um, uh, I had my own investigative beat, and there were certain homicide reporters in the newsroom that uh, jumped up every time there was a dead body. I should say that two other women in Colorado had also gone missing. Uh, So authorities charged Bundy with Karen Campbell's murder. And Bundy was extradited from Utah to the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs. And uh, so certainly the newsroom was deployed on this story. No, they weren't. They weren't? No. Why do you think that was? Our news director at the time was a guy named Ron Scott. Lasted a year at the station, but I, I told him this is a national story. You got to let me go up there. And he said, it's not a national story. It's not a, even a Denver story because we don't broadcast into uh, into Aspen. And I said, let me go. You're going to see this. This, is, this will be a huge story. And he refused. So I did what I probably shouldn't have done. I chartered. A, I was taking flying lessons at, at the time. Hmm. Asked my pilot if he would fly me and uh, a photographer up to Aspen. He said, sure. So we flew through the worst lightning storm 
that I can remember, with him diving between mountains if he saw a hole in the clouds. So we were uh, pretty shaken by the time we got up to Aspen. But you knew that this would be a story with national implications. Absolutely. And certainly you had covered uh, earlier in Seattle what appeared to be a serial killer. Uh, Did you have any gut that this might be the same person? I did. I had been to enough murder scenes, that uh, gruesome murder scenes, that were duplicated in Oregon and Utah and Colorado. And, and it uh, it felt like the same person because the body was always dragged up into the woods. Um, the heads were often removed. My goodness. And um, the women obviously were brutalized before and after they died. So this was a story that you insisted on covering, and it took some wild turns in Colorado because at a preliminary hearing in Aspen at the Pitkin County Courthouse, Ted Bundy escapes. Good evening. Convicted Utah kidnapper Theodore Bundy has escaped, escaped from an Aspen, Colorado courtroom and remains at this hour the subject of a manhunt. What happened that first time? He jumped out of a window 24 feet to the ground, injured his ankle, uh, stripped stripped off his clothes and got some replacement clothes. And uh, headed up Aspen Mountain. Do you remember uh, the search for him? And do, I wonder if you were <laughs> on it as a reporter. Even <laughs> well, I was sending back stories at that point. And uh, since uh, since I was in Aspen, Ron Scott agreed to put the stories on the air. Mm-hmm. In fact, our com- our competition in uh, Denver was putting the stories on the air. So uh, I stayed up there for four or five days with my photog. Just driving up and down the street, hoping we'd be the one to catch him. You Just, were on the lookout. Now, he was recaptured yes. at that point. And uh, there's some footage in the documentary uh, just after that. Bundy is being led through the courthouse. And he has this big, creepy smile on his face. It really seemed that he loved the attention. Do you think that's true? I don't know what I think about that. I mm. think uh, a person who is that sick... Uh, I'm not sure they're craving for attention. It's something else going on. Remarkably, just six months later, Bundy escapes again, Mm -hmm. this time from the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs. What happened that time? Well, we didn't know. I presumed he would leave the state. And uh, this is another one of the reasons that I think that he killed many more than the 36 that are attributed to him. Because he traveled extensively. He, he had a habit of uh, killing two girls a month. And you go state by state and ask uh, if they have any missing girls. And we did. And yeah, we, we've got a few. Were they young women? Yeah. Maybe uh, college students? Yeah. The same MO. So and very I, similar I sw- profile. I swore that he was killing people in, in Georgia, Oklahoma. He had gotten so thin that he was able to escape from his jail cell through, the, I think, the the ceiling yep. in Garfield County. Peeled open a metal ceiling, was able to crawl through it. And he was also able to get out of uh, the Roaring Fork Valley uh, onto Denver, I believe. He rode a bus to Denver, yes. And flew out. Yep. And this means that he goes on eventually to Florida, where the killings continue. What was the sense back then of the responsibility 
of the uh, authorities that were watching him in Colorado. Well, I knew at the time that police departments didn't talk to each other. They all wanted to solve the case themselves. And there's even that kind of competition between you know individual officers where at that time facts weren't being shared with uh, uh, among police officers. So it was there was so much that went wrong from the police investigation standpoint. There, there were no computers. There were no, nobody was keeping lists of anything. In fact, the, the, <laughs> the list of missing and dead women was kept on a, uh, on a chalkboard in Captain Swindler's, Swindley, Netflix has Swindler. It's uh, Herb Swindley in his office. This is where? In Seattle. In Seattle. Yeah. Got it. It was low-tech, the communication was not great, and so coordination, certainly among states, Mm -hmm. was just not there. It wasn't there. But this must have been a huge black eye for law enforcement in Colorado to have Ted Bundy escape, uh, not once but twice, and then to, in part, be responsible for his ability to continue killing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you remember there being a lot of talk about that? And Um, finger-pointing, perhaps? There was increasing talk. Not so much finger point, pointing, but um, what can we do better? Um, how can we get other counties talking to us? So they began sending liaison officers to the other homicide squads. And at, at one point, they put together what they called the King County Task Force, which um, had at one time a couple dozen or three dozen uh, police officers, investigators, detectives. King County, the county King County, Seattle, of course, yeah, biggest where, county in the in the uh, country where this had be- had begun, and there was indeed some first time cooperation among states as they began to realize the magnitude of this. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and former Nine News anchor Ward Lucas is my guest. He appears in the new documentary on Netflix, Conversations with a Killer about Ted Bundy. So Bundy is eventually arrested in Florida, but again, he has, by that point, already murdered three war- three more women at a sorority house at Florida State University. That we, that we know of. That we know of. That's a recurring theme for yes, you, that you yes. think there are many more. He was tried and convicted of those murders, executed in 1989. What do you remember thinking when he was put to death, Ward Lucas? Um, I tried not to think about it. I was glad he was gone. He uh, had just. I, I was. I sat with many of the families in Seattle. There are no words. You, know, you put your arms around somebody and and or hold their hand, but um, you know there are just no words. The grief is so massive when a child is taken in that manner. How do you feel about Bundy getting a lot of attention now? More than forty years after he brutally well, killed so many. I women. always look at the good side of things. Kids are watching the documentary, and they're thinking, I don't think I'm going to hitchhike anymore. You think there's a sense of uh, awareness that this develops? A little more awareness. Uh-huh. So I think, quite frankly, that uh, Netflix is doing a tremendous service by putting this together. And they did a good job. The editing is good, very good. The writing is good. Does it focus enough on the victims, do you think? I think it's balanced. What do you think explains the fascination with Ted Bundy all these years later? Well, Netflix is doing a series on killers. And Bundy was a natural because he was one of the the most prolific in the country. Um, It was very close to the 40th anniversary of his arrest, the 30th anniversary of his execution. 
there are a whole lot of coincidences that made it a um, a story that I wish could be shown to school kids. That's, it's not it's not too gruesome for kids. Gosh, that's such an interesting perspective. I just wonder if it like instills an unnecessary amount of fear in them, though, or wary more wary attitude about strangers, about getting into strange cars, about hitchhiking. We used to hitchhike thousands and thousands of miles up and down the West Coast. We all did it. It was the cheapest way to get to um, La Jolla. Thanks for being with us, Ward. We appreciate your perspective. So that was former Nine News anchor Ward Lucas. He covered the Ted Bundy story, and it is indeed the subject of the new documentary on Netflix, Conversations with a Killer. Director Joe Berlinger has also made a feature film called Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, starring Zac Efron as Bundy. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Astronaut Scott Carpenter, who orbited the Earth three times in 1962, was a pioneer of the U.S. space program. But there's an aspect of his career that's less well-known. The Boulder native and CU graduate was involved in another ambitious program. This time, Carpenter would not be an astronaut, but an aquanaut, venturing into the deepest parts of the ocean. A vast and forbidding domain, Every bit as daunting as outer space. The story of the Navy's aquanauts is told in a PBS special that premieres tonight. Ben Hellworth wrote the book that the documentary is based on. Hi, Ben. Hello, Ryan. Good to be with you. Your book is Sea Lab, America's Forgotten Quest to Live and Work on the Ocean Floor. Why would we, right. why would we want to do that? What was the Navy thinking? Well, the Navy wasn't actually thinking too much about it. It was really the uh, uh, a person in the Navy named uh, George Bond who got the idea going and then brought the Navy along to his way of thinking, which was that, hey, it's the dawn of the space age. We're talking about uh, orbiting the Earth and going to the moon, and yet we have such extremely limited capacities when it comes to going in the ocean. We ought to be able to do better, and uh, let's see if we can let's see if we can do that which was um, some very far-sighted thinking um, in the Navy and in the diving community at that time. We're talking about the late 50s and early 60s. I mean, there were illustrations of, you know, homes and buildings on the seafloor and perhaps farming going on down there. Uh, yeah, that's, what, that's the way he was thinking. He's the, you know, for uh, military purposes, industrial, commercial, uh, whole worlds would uh, open up to us if only we could get down there and stay a while. And that was really the key because the conventional diving methods of the time, uh, as those in the diving community knew, were such that you could not only not dive very deep, but even if you did, you couldn't stay more but you know, than a few minutes. So right. you're not going to get a whole lot of work done for whatever your project is if you, if you can't stay very long. And that's what uh, Dr. Bond and ultimately the Navy wanted to kind of break that barrier. You know, it was uh, it's something that was going to um, make all those visions possible. Okay, so Scott Carpenter, this Colorado boy, 
uh, who I should say died in 2013, was a very big part of this. It's really almost by happenstance he gets connected to C-Lab. It sounds like this was a, a thrill seeker, this man. Oh, Carpenter, yeah, you, I think he fits the definition. Uh, he was always a little out on the edge, um, always looking for a challenge, almost uh, killed himself and his beloved 34 Ford Coupe on a Boulder Highway, uh, went over the edge, uh, uh, taking a corner a little too fast, and that was not the only uh, uh, brush with uh, uh, injury or death he had, um, but um, he was also a very kind of a, a low key guy too. I mean, he he didn't uh, you know exude craziness or anything, and um, uh, mostly you know he was he was looking for a challenge. And as you said, it was rather by happenstance that he came to the C Lab program. Like uh, much of the nation around that time, uh, Jacques Cousteau, the famed French uh, undersea explorer and filmmaker, had captured people's uh, attention and imagination and put some new focus on uh, on uh, the undersea world. And Carpenter was one of those people who took an interest in what Cousteau was doing and actually met Cousteau at a function, I believe it was at MIT, at a conference. And and by that time, Cousteau was doing some uh, experiments with living in the ocean. And Carpenter asked if he might get involved. And Cousteau said, well, you know, your, your very own Navy is... Uh, huh is doing the same thing. You ought to go talk to them. And uh, plus, you don't speak French, and I uh, can't pay you very much. So um, go find uh, Dr. Bond, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And, uh, and to that point, Carpenter knew nothing of it. And that, uh, you know, sort of speaks volumes about the low profile the, the program had at that point. Carpenter would eventually join C-Lab's second iteration, and uh, this documentary has some great footage. Here's Carpenter talking with Walter Cronkite about the importance of the mission. I think in the immediate future, exploration first of the ocean will bring us uh, far greater rewards than uh, the exploration of space because, uh, if for no other reason, of the distances involved. The richest part of the seafloor is roughly a million times closer than the moon. And then here he is entertaining his fellow aquanauts. Okay, Ben, what the heck are we hearing? Oh my gosh, yes. Well, uh, Irene Goodnight, a, a classic uh, for which uh, Carpenter had brought along his ukulele to Sea Lab 2, and uh, because uh, at the depth they were living, you have to switch out the nitrogen typically found in air with helium. That gives you that nice uh, falsetto you were <laughs> hearing there, and that's just one of the many complicating factors of uh, trying to live in the ocean is just trying to understand each other um, when you sound like that. And, um, yeah, that's, uh, I love that clip. That's a, that's a good one. So Carpenter was part of a rotating crew, uh, aboard Sea Lab 2, this essentially mini submarine on the sea floor, 200 feet underwater. Uh, I think the, the whole mission was like 45 days. Carpenter was on board for about a month of that. Um, yeah, and understand too that a month is, is, uh, off the charts as far as what, uh, the diving conventions of the time were a depth of 200 feet may not seem like that much uh, when you're going up, but when you're going down, the uh, change in pressure is such that the um, complications are significant, and a, a conventional dive to 200 feet 
in that era with the existing technology, typical technology would have been maybe half an hour on a good day. And you're talking about a guy living down there for a month. That starts to give you some perspective of just what that duration meant for that time. And the Navy felt really emboldened by this success. So they pushed to go even bigger. And with C-Lab 3, the sort of next iteration, there, mm-hmm. there is what becomes a lethal flaw. Um, just briefly explain what happened. Uh, I think, uh, yeah, they, they went uh, much uh, aiming for 600 feet now with maybe some uh, test dives from the lab going as, as deep as uh, seven or 800 feet and rebuilt the uh, C-Lab 2 lab to be bigger and better. And I think uh, Murphy's Law kind of kicked in here, and they, they had a lot of problems with the uh, engineering of the lab itself. Uh, it was leaking when they put it on the bottom off the coast of uh, Los Angeles. And, uh, in fact, Carpenter was one of the people who went down in a, a little mini submarine to go uh, patrol around C-Lab once they had it on the bottom to try to figure out what the heck was going on. And there were all these bubbles coming out of the side, which was uh, uh, cause of the leaking. And that was the lab was therefore losing pressure. Mm. And this put a whole sort of uh, additional time constraint on, on things. And the water was cold and the uh, equipment was faulty. And, and really, uh, it, was, it was a kind of a case of everything that could go wrong did go wrong. And that eventually resulted in a loss of life. Just briefly explain that to us. Well, yeah, unfortunately, the loss of life was uh, in the opening hours of of the project. Uh, A beloved uh, aquanaut uh, who had been part of uh, C-Lab 2 was involved in trying to open the lab and fix the leaks and get the project going, and and something uh, went wrong, apparently with his gear, although the uh, investigation that went on immediately afterwards was a little foggy as to what the true uh, cause of his death was, and that remains sort of a uh, topic of conversation among those who were there. Um, but the uh, death caused a postponement in the program, and ultimately it's, it's cancellation, although strangely enough, uh, I mean, those, those involved were felt that, you know, they had come far enough, the project ought to go on. Everybody knew it was a a risky business, and um, as as such things are, and that uh, you got to go on if um, tragedy strikes. Same as a couple of years before, three of uh, Carpenter's fellow astronauts right. uh, burned up in the Apollo One fire, and uh, the project went on, and that was the same uh, feeling people had about Sea Lab, but it it, it uh, did not, and was allowed to sort of fade away. This aquanaut, by the way, who lost his life was named Barry Cannon. 50, 50 years later, is there something that we know today or technology we have today or something that we owe the C-Lab program? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In fact, it's, uh, this uh, accident we're talking about is uh, 50 years ago, uh, a little later this week, um, although not a, not a uh, time that's uh, much marked because it, it is so uh, forgotten. But yes, yeah. the technology lived on. It was developed by the Navy for purposes of deep water diving espionage, and um, it was picked up by industry, which was at that time moving into deeper water and needed uh, an underwater workforce that could handle, uh, you know, construction and uh, maintenance of of, uh, oil platforms all over the world in water that would have been uh, inaccessible prior to the uh, advances that were made during Sea Lab. So we all sort of have some 
uh, gas in the tank uh, or have had that may have had divers' hands on it who were doing what they were doing uh, as a result of the Sea Lab advances. Ben, in just the last few seconds, is anyone seriously talking today about living on the bottom of the ocean? Well, when you say bottom of the ocean, uh, it's still sort of unknown just how deep a uh, human body can actually handle the pressures. There are other ways of getting down there with uh, robotics and mini-subs. Right. But uh, yeah, there's some people talking about it, and there's a vestige of sea lab still off the coast of Florida called the Aquarius Reef Base, where for the last 20 years, uh, scientists have been um, operating... Uh, uh, in the Sea Lab style, where they can stay on the bottom for an extended period and do their work and research. All right, Ben Hallworth, author of Sea Lab, America's Forgotten Quest to Live and Work on the Ocean Floor. This is CPR News.